Father, we thank you for Dave. We thank you for who he is. We thank you for um, what he brings to us as a community. We thank you for his friendship, for his love, companionship, um, his wisdom, his guidance over the years to us as a family and to us as a community. And Lord, we bless him in this moment as he comes before us to share his heart, to share what you've laid on his heart and what you're doing for us. And Lord, we bless him when you speak your words to us that we may go change, that we may change the world, bring heaven to earth. All God's people said, Amen. 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 Well, here we all are. Happy as can be. I've got my proper little leather Bible. Oh, good. But due to the number of Bible references I'm going to quote, I will not be asking you to search for them uh, in your versions. I will just quote them so that you know that I'm not making it up out of my head. Um, now, uh, on Wednesday, when we gathered, uh, we were talking about the book of Psalms. And uh, Steve told us stuff that some of us in the room had never heard before. Uh, about there's five books in it, and uh, a whole group of writers, and one of them was David, and, and all this kind of thing. But in the middle of the discussion, uh, we were looking at a particular passage, and we noticed that the word but occurred. Um, and um, when I was talking to Steve about today, he said, oh no, you've got free range day. Preach on whatever you like. So I went to my little sermon folder. I thought none of these are going to work. <laughs> and ones that I picked in Paris or whatever. So when we were sitting at Lovell, Sharon said to me, what are you going to speak about? And I said, I'm going to speak on but. B-U-T. And, um, and so uh, I went to uh, one, of, one of those sites where you can look up words. And I looked up all the references to but in the book of Matthew. Because I thought that would be enough. If it did Mark, Luke, and John, uh, we'd be here till Christmas, which in the current heat wouldn't be a, a good scenario. But then, as I was going through the book of Matthew, there were so many, I thought, oh my goodness, how do I classify this? There's four butts over here that are about, um, uh, you know, uh, well, later in the sermon I'll tell you what they're about. But there were so many subjects, and I just thought, no, Dave, focus. Okay, so um, I'm focusing on uh, the use of the word but when Jesus is talking about forgiveness. But before we get to that, I want to uh, just stand back from the word and see where it fits into the bigger story. If you come to uh, Mosaic for any period of time, you'll discover that we don't want to just hand you a little bit of teaching and say, there it is. We want to say, this is where this fits in to the big story of who Jesus was and who God is. So the first thing we need to say is that it's a contrast word. It's causing us to think, ah, we may have thought that previously, but Jesus is suggesting we think this now. So uh, it's a word that's used to get us to examine our thinking and the way that we understand and perceive things. What Jesus is saying is, it's not that that you thought, it's this. And so it's, it's a word that causes us to stand back from the situation or from whatever we're thinking about and say, have I understood this correctly or is Jesus helping me to understand it in a different way? Jesus is also in the tradition of the day and one of the traditions in public debate was what is called challenge and repost. So they would come to Jesus 
And they'd say things like, by whose authority do you speak? And he wouldn't actually answer them. He would come back with a challenge to them. And so when he's in the temple and he's doing some great teaching and the crowds are really impressed, they send over some of the you know, religious dignitaries of the day and they say to him, by whose authority are you speaking here? And he tells a story about two brothers. Um, and one of them says to his dad, yes, I'll come and work for you today. That will be absolutely fine. And the other one says, oh, I can't now. I'm too busy. I've got to watch the World Cup final or whatever. You know, I, can't, I can't be there. And uh, so his dad goes to the job. And lo and behold, the brother who said he was going to be there doesn't turn up. And the one who said he wasn't going to be there does turn up. And he's basically saying to these people that have challenged him, you've been waiting for a Messiah. The Messiah has come. The ones who said they would be there when the Messiah came are nowhere to be seen. The ones that didn't really want to acknowledge or even have that discussion are now here. So Jesus is in this tradition of uh, argument where you didn't always answer the question. You told a story or made a point to challenge the people. So a lot of these uses of the word but are part of that challenge uh, culture. Jesus also affirms the past, but also develops uh, uh, and represents uh, uh, an understanding that comes from God the Father. And Jesus is sitting within a tradition where there are at least five other groups who would dispute what he said. So when he uses some of these but words, um, there's going to be people in the crowd who are very annoyed, and I'll come to that uh, a little later. But who are these people? And I've mentioned this to you before, but just to recap, one a group was the Essenes. And the Essenes went off and lived in the desert because they didn't want to live with these nasty, horrible, sinful, destructive. Those of you listening on the tape, I know it's faded, it's because I've walked away and I'm going to walk back now. Um, so the Essenes were living off in the desert so they didn't get polluted by anybody else. And you do find religious communities like that even today. Jesus chose not to go and live in the desert. Then there was the Herodians, and they were basically like certain politicians in the world today. They were like, uh, I'm going to live a life of sin and debauchery with dancing girls who order, ask for John the Baptist's head on a platter. Um, uh, but I'm also going to say nice things uh, to the Christians and the evangelicals, but I'll also say nice things to all the other religions because, you know, I'll do whatever is politically expedient. So the Herodians were always trying to be politically expedient. And it was one of the Herodian families that had ordered a genocide that was aimed at Jesus. So a lot of the time, Jesus' teaching is not sitting well uh, with the Herodians. Then there was the Sadducees, and they were basically like, we don't believe in heaven, we don't believe in the resurrection, but there's so much we don't believe in. We only believe in uh, Genesis, Exodus, Deuteronomy, first five books, we're done. And uh, they had all the money and they controlled the temple. They were kind of like the rich religious people. The current equivalent today would be Freemasons, um, and uh, who would be very religious, but um, also interested in the money and all that kind of stuff. Never say we don't have any controversy in these sermons. Um, he said, addressing the tape. Um, then there was the zealots, and their basic thing was, let's kill the enemy. 
Um, I mean, I don't have to think, Nick, say much more than that, but basically. <laughs> Let's get the Romans out. Let's kill them. And then there was the Greeks, the Romans, and the pagans. Now, things about the Greeks, the Romans, and the pagans was that they were like fatalists. We cannot control the gods. The gods do whatever they want. Now, we just have to live our life and try and negotiate with the gods and, you know, sing a few songs and make some sacrifices and hope that everything comes out all right. And then there was the Pharisees, who, in many ways, had a lot of teachings that were very similar to Jesus. But they were religious nationalists. And so they were like, we have got to be a pure people, because then God can bless us, and then he'll get rid of the Romans for us, and you know, all that good stuff. And they were Jesus' biggest competitors, because they also had people going around two by two to all the villages. And there's, you know, in some of them stories, like where the guy gets let down through the roof, and then they're challenging Jesus because he says to the guy that the guy sins can be forgiven. It, it's probably, you know, like the two uh, Christians would go to a, uh, the two followers of Jesus would go to a town, but a couple of weeks before there'd been two Pharisees along. Now, the difference with the Pharisees is they're like, is there a clean house here? Is there a devout people? We don't want to stay with them, scruff bags over there. They probably haven't washed the dishes properly. And if they haven't washed the dishes properly, we won't be able to eat from the food and all that kind of stuff. So, whenever we read this teaching that Jesus is doing, we can be really tempted to think, yeah, lovely, very wise. But we need to step back and say, if he is doing this teaching which uses the word but a lot, what is the context that he's speaking it into? What, what will they be hearing when he says uh, these things? So, it's a key word. I'm just sticking to the book of Matthew. We could talk about all uh, the uses of the word but in association with humility. The last shall be first. You know, Jesus tells parables uh, about all of that kind of stuff. We could use uh, all the texts that uh, talk about words from God as a source of wisdom. There are so many themes that we could look at. Before we actually get down to this core thing that we're just going to do this, this afternoon, forgiveness, let's just look at what we're thinking when we approach these words, because the word but is slightly confrontational to the patterns of our thinking. Because it's saying, really? Just hold on a minute. Maybe we might like to think about that again. We need to understand the context in which God comes and confronts our ideas. And the context that he does it in is the context of grace, truth, and life. Grace, truth, and life. And the Somewhere else in the scripture, I can't remember the reference at this moment, he, uh, it says that he came full of grace and truth. And so we just want to explore that very briefly, using the word but. So where does the grace come in? Well, the grace comes in in the whole storytelling. Jesus was accepting of large groups of the society that everybody else wanted to reject. But one of the key passages is Matthew 9, verse 36. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion. How else would some of those other groups have viewed the multitudes? The zealots would have been like, oh, I wonder if they would come up to Jerusalem and lead a riot. Uh, which is pretty much what some of the crowd thought. And they chased Jesus around Palestine for a fortnight, trying to persuade him to go up there. They thought, good teacher, change all that bread and fish into a good thing. 
Maybe he could smite a few Romans. I mean, this might be the breakthrough that we've been waiting for. But for us, it speaks to us. Uh, it goes on to say the, the, the crowd were like sheep without a shepherd. So it speaks to us of the compassion of God. And whenever we meet something in the Bible that's challenging to us and the way that we think, we can easily come under a kind of condemnation, like we, we're not quite measuring up and things aren't quite right. When actually we are following somebody who is filled with compassion, and if he confronts our ideas, it's to help us discover wisdom, not because he's just being fussy. So, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. This is how the change uh, in us and the way that we think comes. We are nurtured by every word, but every word that proceeds uh, from the mouth of God. Matthew 4, verse 14. So we've had a, but when he saw the multitude, he was moved with compassion. Now we have, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, uh, as an understanding that there is truth that God wants to speak into us. And that truth will begin to change the way we think about life. Um, and then we'll begin to know the mind of God as expressed in Jesus. Another thing uh, that uh, Jesus says is basically, don't worry. Now for every one of us in this room, this is a word from God. Don't worry. Now, I know it's not easy. I know for many of us, worrying is our main sort of, you know, thing in life. Um, many of us, all of us, we all worry. But Jesus is saying in this passage, I'm shortening a bit before, but don't worry, but seek first the kingdom of God. Matthew 6, verse 33. What does it mean to seek first the kingdom of God? And, you know, part of us is thinking, oh, my word, this sounds like hard work. Does it mean I've got to be really pious? And do I need to know my scripture? Shall I be memorizing everything? Um, do I need to understand theologically the Greek root of the word kingdom? Um, and therefore, you know, uh, it can become a bit of a burden for us. But Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God. Put it at the forefront of the things that are guiding the way that you think about life. We can begin to look at life and say, what is God's will for this kind of situation? And, and 99 times out of 100, it's positive. Reconciliation. Clearing up of a misunderstanding. Uh, the stopping of abusive behaviour. You know, whatever it is, it will be a good thing that God wants for it. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. And, but, but, seek ye first the kingdom of God. It's a contrast thing. Because our temptation as human beings is to seek first what suits us. It's all back to the garden. You know, Adam and Eve, would you believe it? They, bit of cottony clam work in there. She's got that. Um, uh, rebelled against uh, God. And they followed their own selfish desire. And God is calling us back all the time from selfish desire into understand, understanding the character and heart of God. Another verse that plays into this, another but, but he that doeth the will of the Father. 
So we've been called upon to do the will of the Father. In uh, the Lord's Prayer, it, it says, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. God wants to bring heaven to earth. He wants us to be part of that heaven to earth uh, outpouring, that uh, flowing out of the goodness of God. So what is the will of God? What is the will of God for uh, this community around here? What is the will of God for your life? You know, the will of God for many of our lives is a lifting off uh, of the curse that has come upon us because of previous life circumstance, which we have allowed to become something that defines us. Instead of stepping into the identity that Jesus has given us through his work on the cross, and because of his desire to restore us to who he wanted us to be in the first place. God's trajectory is from Genesis to Revelation, and from that point of the cross, the trajectory uh, is towards the restoration uh, of us completely. He has reconciled all things uh, to himself. And so we are part of that uh, thing that God is doing. Some people sing along to this, or they have a little prophetic song. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If I could do a bit of a surf to that, that looks a bit more green. Yeah, all right. <laughs> so that was Matthew 7, verse 21. He that doeth the will of the Father. I lived out faith. And then wisdom becomes known, but wisdom is known by its children or its fruits. Matthew 11, verse 19. So in all of this, we're being called towards uh, a life uh, that is, through the use of the word, but moving away from uh, a self-directed or um, corrupted religious view of what it means uh, to be a friend uh, of God. And we're finding our identity in who Jesus was and what he did. Now, the surprising thing about all of this is that a lot of the time, it's not the holy people who get it. So we could be sitting here today thinking, but Dave, you know, uh, I'm, I'm not a very holy person. Uh, some stuff has happened that, you know, um, how can I be holy? How can I do the will of God? How can I do all of this stuff? And then another but verse comes in. And he's talking about John the Baptist. But the publicans and the harlots believed him. And then the verse goes on to say, but all you religious people, you were like, whatever, you know, bit of a spectacle, went out there, you had all that raffia on or whatever he was he used to wear, sackcloth, eating locusts and honey. What's the big deal? But the publicans and the harlots, the prostitutes and the... Uh, tax collectors and the barkeeps and all that kind of stuff were hearing John and something was touching them deep inside. So as we come to this final section where we look at forgiveness, please don't be thinking maybe one day I'll be holy enough to do all of this. Because actually it was the unholy people that were better at doing it than anybody else. So, finally, forgiveness. Now, what do the seven? Probably six. Uh, what are the six buts that I have chosen here speak to us of? They all speak to us of something slightly different. So, 
The first one, with respect to forgiveness, is are you taking a speck out of somebody else's eye? You know, a little bit of sawdust. And saying, oh, you've got a bit of sawdust in your eye. Oh, you're what a speck you're in. But actually, the Bible uses, in the King James Version, uses the word beam. In many of the ways we've been told it is plank. But what Jesus is doing is just doing a contrast thing. You're like pointing out, oh yeah, well, you know, you grumpy attitude, you need to sort yourself out, get forward in the meeting, get prayed for, come on. And Lord, the Lord's talking down again, you've got a plank on your head, and you're judging that one over there that's got a speck of sawdust in your eye, sort yourself out. So, one of the things that God is calling us to, in his use of the word but, in this particular circumstance, is humility. He's calling us to have a humility about the sin of others. Where we're not going like, oh, I am so holy, and I cannot believe that this person is so unholy. Dear God, sort them out. But actually, to come to these things and say, Lord, I know that I've been there, and I know that in some areas I'm worse. But Lord, could there be a, a restoration here? Could there be a a reconciliation? Could there be a sorting out? And often when we're in conflict, it's that ability to step back and say, well, I know they've done something wrong, but have I been totally right and correct in this situation? That will help resolve it. So, first is, be careful of the beam um, that's in your eye or on your head. So we need humility. The first part and then he goes on to say but if you forgive not if you forgive not can you be forgiven strong verse I mean you know it'd be like oh a bit in your face Jesus do you mind you know we want easy grace not this costly stuff where we have to forgive other people. Surely you can see that I'm just a weak individual. Forgive me, I don't want to forgive them. Give me a break. But he says here, if you forgive not, if you forgive not, but if you forgive not. Now, we all know that sometimes forgiveness is really hard. The things that have been said to us are horrible. The things that have been done to us are horrible. And we know sometimes that the person that we need to forgive is not repentant or sorry. And sometimes what God is asking of us is not that there be a conversation where everything gets sorted out, but that we were ready if that conversation ever took place. We were ready to say, I am willing to forgive you. Let us start again. And the reason that God says, I am willing to, he wants us to say, I am willing to forgive you. Let us start again. It's because that is the God that we worship. Seven covenants with the people of Israel. Seven times where he comes back and says, well, <clears throat> things haven't quite been working out here the way we're praying, but I'm going to forgive you and let's start again. Abraham, Noah, David, <clears throat> the list goes on. New covenant. God is always coming back to us and saying, let's start again. In some of these situations, are we willing to start again? 
my mum has a friend in London who the husband drunk so much and was so violent that eventually um, they put him out and uh, her sons helped make that happen. But they kept in contact with him and he uh, had some kind of experience uh, with Jesus about two years ago. And he's a changed man. Uh, but he's dying. He's like months away. So they went back to the mum and they said, he's not like he was. Now, she would have had every right to just dig her heels in and say, I'm not risking it again. But she took the word of her kids and she let him back in the house so that he could be around his extended family in the final months of his life. And he is a changed man and he's not the abusive person that he was before. But you know, that was a major, major deep intake of breath thing for this lady to look at the past and say, can it be different? And say, well, maybe it is. Maybe it is. Now, tied into that is another but. So Peter comes to Jesus and he says, so Jesus, when somebody's messed up about, we have to forgive them seven times. And Jesus says, but seven times? More like 70 times seven. 490 times that you've got to forgive somebody. I mean, you know. I've been living in Eastbourne for 35 years. There's one or two people who I feel like I've forgiven 490 times. <laughs> you know. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it's hard. And Jesus is being what they call hyperbolic here. You know, I mean, there's very few situations of his life where we're like, these have to forgive somebody 490 times. But he's making a point, you know, that. And it ties into this other stuff about the fruits of the Spirit, patience, long-suffering, kindness and humility and, and all of those things, all being tied into the possible restoration of people. And if we're around Christian communities, we can be very dreamlike and say, oh, it's going to be lovely, everybody's going to be nice. And a lot of the time, Christian communities are much nicer than other communities but they're full of human beings. And if we look at these human beings when they're criticising us behind our backs or to our faces and say, oh, I feel, des oh, I feel desolate, I feel like, how's the Christian thing working out? Somebody's criticising me. And God's up in heaven going, um, excuse me, I got Paul to write all those letters. Um, this is not something new to your church in the 21st century. This is humanity just being itself. Uh, get your life together. This is why I sent my son. You know, get on with the forgiveness stuff, please. And sometimes we have to be those people who will uh, forgive 70 times 7. Another but that we get, and I'm on to my final two points here, for those of you who are wilting, feeling like you're going to faint, calling for bottles of water, whatever it is. Um, Peter has said that, then Jesus says that in Matthew 5, verse 39, uh, if somebody strikes you on the cheek, turn the other cheek. And if somebody asks you to walk an extra mile, uh, or, or walk a mile with them, walk an extra mile. Now the cultural background to this is that um, if there was some kind of dispute going on, uh, people would slap you with their right hand. And if you turn the other cheek, they're going to have to slap you with the other hand. But the other hand, you weren't really supposed to strike people with it. 
And they weren't supposed to stand there and turn the other cheek. So by being dignified but not vengeful, you're actually shaming the person. And then the walking the extra mile thing is that the Romans were entitled, according to the laws of the day, to ask you to carry their bag for a mile. But it was actually a little bit of an affront to their code of honour. You know, they basically were told, you can use the community as your servant, but don't push it. And so if you said, oh, I'll carry it for two miles, they'll be like, oh dear. Well, this isn't quite what we had in mind. I was going to find somebody else to do it. And, and so they, they were in a position. So Jesus isn't saying being a, be a total rollover, just, you know, give in, whatever. He's saying take a dignified stand um, in that but. And then, but love your enemies. Do you ever want to wind your mother up? Quote this phrase to her. I was on the phone with somebody the other day, and they said they uh, were working on a book together, and they said, oh, I was going through this terrible life situation. Somebody in the family had been arrested. I was pacing around the, the living room and thinking, oh, what we're going to do, this is terrible. I'm a very prominent Christian working in the whole of relationships with the police, and my son's just been arrested. What am I going to do? And a daughter comes along and says, Bye, mother, I think we should pray. And she's thinking, Cheeky monkey, yeah, I know. Yeah. You know, I lead a prayer movement. But she forgot. She was so caught up in the emotion of it all. And so they went and prayed. And uh, um, when the son came out of custody uh, 48 hours later, he said, um, he said, I got down on my knees in the cell and I said to the Lord, Sort me out and I'll give my life for you and I'll do whatever you want me to do. And he said, the other thing, Mum, was I could hear him singing. And there was another voice. And uh, that really helped. And he was assuming that they were somewhere else in the prison block. You know, at the custody desk or something. And that they'd broken into song. But they were actually at home. And so this supernatural event had taken place. Where he could hear it, his mum and his sister uh, singing. But it's not easy to love your enemy. My man rang me one day and she said, I cannot believe these people that are by my house. They said they'd pay for the carpet and now we're nearly at completion. They said they haven't got the money and they just want the carpet. And so, you know, she had her say and I said, Mother, I think you should bless your enemies. Pray for them that despitefully use you. Love your enemies. She laughed. Cheeky young man. Quote the Bible at me. And I'm like, Mother, you taught me all these verses. <laughs> And, uh, but it's not always easy, to love, always easy to love your enemies. And, and it's a real issue in our culture because we make people our enemies. The Muslims are our enemies. The, this group are our enemies. The, you know, they might be our economic enemies or our religious enemies. And we tend to have good spiritual reasons why they should be kept at arm's length. You know, I had a lady uh, here in Eastbourne and she said, oh, these Muslims, they shouldn't be allowed to come here. When they have these these mosque places, it invites the devil. And uh, I said, hello? <laughs> I said, what? what? Do you not think that he that is in us is greater than he that is in the world? I said, do you not think that the church in Rome did absolutely fine, despite the fact that it was surrounded by pagan temples on almost every street? Are you, do you think that God is worried about how many pagan temples there are in the UK? He's more worried about whether there are godly people who are orientating their life towards him, sending out their prayers, 
uh, and bringing the word of God to the culture all around them. Do you think that God looked down in the book of to, and spoke to Jeremiah and said, uh, pray for the prosperity of the place that you live, and uh, seek the good of it, uh, and was thinking, and by the way, knock down all the pagan temples, which wasn't an option. No, you couldn't run around Babylon going, sorry, I don't like your temples. <laughs> They'd have been in your community like a flash, destroying your houses, you know, ethnic cleansing, the whole shooting match. So, loving our enemies is a real, it's a real thing for now. It's a 2018 thing. And uh, if we join in with the animosity of our culture, uh, then we'll be missing the gospel. And the final, finally, Matthew 6, verse 14, where Jesus is saying, forgive, and, and he says, but that you may know forgiveness. And so there's this reciprocal thing. We have been forgiven, so we forgive others. We have been forgiven, so we forgive others. So, to recap, the word but calls us to different perspectives on everyday issues. And if we go through just one book, the book of Matthew, we'll find hundreds of references to it. If we focus in on all the buts associated with forgiveness, it calls us to humility, to a life that imitates the character of God. It calls us to long-suffering and patience. It calls us to dignity, but not vengeance. It calls us to be counter-cultural in loving our enemies. And it basically says, this is the overflow. You've been forgiven, forgive others. Let's pray, shall we? Dear Lord, we bless all the people that use this centre. We bless them uh, that they may know it and regard it as a place of welcome, uh, a place where they could come and seek uh, comfort uh, and nurture uh, in some cases. Lord, we uh, thank you that we could serve uh, the community. And Lord, we thank you that you've given us the ability uh, and the desire and the capacity and the gifts uh, that we might be those who live against the flow of the way that uh, the world often is. Lord, release your Holy Spirit upon every life in this room in a new and fresh way in this moment. If there is an idea to be affirmed, then Lord, pour out your Spirit upon that idea uh, in their heads and, and build it up and strengthen it and bring in wisdom about it from every direction. And Lord, if there's something that needs to be addressed, if the word but needs to come against any strongholds of thought, ways of thinking, uh, and any of those things, Lord, we pray that you will, in your gentle grace and mercy, bring us truth to break the hold of that destructive thinking and release us into the promise that you gave us, that you have come that we might have life and that life more abundantly. Lord, we don't want to live in a culture of death. We don't want to live in a culture uh, of uh, survival. We want to live in a culture where we enjoy the goodness of God uh, in the creation that he has placed us in. 
Lord, we ask all of these things in your name. Amen. Thanks, babe.